Welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Max Anderson. And this episode, we're continuing our exploration of Antarctica in search of the fabled mountains of madness. Well, it's that time again, as Patreon backers who have been with us for a little while and listeners will be aware, uh, we put together the blasphemous tome each year. And this year was an exception where we did uh, issue 4.5 as well although that was a PDF-only one. Um, Issue 5 for the end of the year is in the works now, and if anyone out there in listener land has any contributions or any submissions they would like to make, ideally 500 words or less, if they still want to get those to us, you have until the end of this month, that is October this month, to get them into us so that we can consider them for Issue 5. Indeed, or any cool pieces of artwork would be most welcome as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And you and I, Matt, were recently at Concrete Cow in Milton Keynes, the small one-day games convention held twice a year. I was in your game, Matt. Yeah, it makes a change. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> what was it called? At Saturnine Chalice. Yeah, it will be a scenario of mine that's uh, going to see print in the uh, somewhere in the near future. Can't exactly be any more specific than that. All right, intriguing <laughs> stuff. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. And the next Concrete Cow will be taking place in March 2020. Without further ado, let's return to the Mountains of Madness. We pick up again. Lake uncovers more and more slate with fossil markings, this time from the Archean Eon, when the Earth's crust was still cooling. Although Dyer thinks that this is nonsense and refuses to help in any substantial way, Lake puts together his own sub-expedition and jumps into a plane setting off some 300 miles away. He's a real typical investigator, then. Well, I'm going to go out and do stuff on my own. See you later. Well, he takes a lot of people with him, though, right? Mm. Yeah, all wearing red shirts. (laughs) Well, we'll come to that. Yeah, it's it's 12 of them in total, isn't it? As their bores recover more samples, the Lake Sub-Expedition start radioing their results back to the main camp. Lake is excited by his discoveries, saying that they make any hazard worth taking. So... Yeah, so Lake's gone ahead, he's set up this camp, he's radioing it back, and then Dyer and his people are like radioing it. I guess they've got a bigger radio mast and stuff set up, so they're radioing it out to the world. They're relaying it back to the Arkham Advertiser. Well-known international publication. (laughs) Yes. These successes spur Lake to continue some one and a half thousand miles to the half-known, half-suspected coastline of Queen Mary and Knoxlands. Dyer sees his recklessness as little more than mutiny until he hears the next radio message announcing that they have found a mountain range that may equal the Himalayas. Those are, that's some <laughs> substantial mountains, right? I don't, there. So he's gone 1,500 miles away. Yeah. I didn't pick up on that. Wow, that's okay. Typical investigator, going way further than you say you're going to go. That's a hell of a way. Yeah, I can never see a mention of the Himalayas without thinking of my maternal grandmother, because she was born within the foothills of the Himalayas. And any time anyone mentioned them in her presence, she'd get very fussy about the pronunciation, immediately correct anyone and say, no, darling, they're Himalayas. They're called the Himalayas, darling. (laughs) This is a family trait you've picked up, Scott. Yes. Or you you should adopt, perhaps, the darling bit. 
Yes, I, I, I shall take that under advisement. That, that just seems like an alien word coming out of the between those lips. <laughs> the next message from Lake Subcamp is even more exciting. You can't imagine anything like this. Highest peaks must go over 35,000 feet. Everest out of the running. Atwood to work out... Oh, Atwood does get another mention. Yeah. yeah. He is the man with the theodolite. Atwood to work out height with theodolite, while Carol and I go up. Probably wrong about cones, for formations look stratified. Possibly Precambrian slate, with other strata mixed in. Queer skyline effects. Regular sections of cubes clinging to highest peaks. Hawthing marvellous in red-gold light of low sun. Like land of mystery in a dream, or gateway to forbidden world of untrodden wonder. Wish you were here to study. I, again, you know, he seems to have the same poetic bent as Dyer. You know, none of them are relaying these things in purely scientific terms. They're all relaying these things like they're, I don't know, weird fiction writers or something. Yeah, forbidden world of untrodden wonder. Yeah, it doesn't sound like your kind of typical radio message where it would just be very staccato. Found mountains, they're big. Tell me more later. I mean, they're really big, right? So Everest is about 29,000, then these are 35,000. Yeah. Oh, what, 6,000 in the grand scheme of things? Well, yeah. So everyone at the main camp remains clustered about the radio, eager for updates. The next air sortie uncovers more details, likening the stone cubes to Rurik's paintings. Once again, old Rurik gets a name check, and suggesting they have been weathered for millions of years. Oh, we'll be hearing more comparisons to Rurik. This text is just lousy with references to them. <laughs> Uh, Lake, Dyer and Captain Douglas spend some time working out the logistics of supplying Lake's new camp. But meanwhile, young Gedney, the foreman of Lake's team, discovers a cave filled with the most remarkable variety of fossils from a huge span of ages. These range from early mollusks to dinosaurs. The coming of the Ice Age, some 500,000 years ago, had seemingly put an end to this abundance of life in the area. I like how they just suddenly stumbled across this cave. Of all the places in Antarctica they could potentially fall through the ground, they fell through it there and found this great big cave. On the other hand, I mean, if it was that abundant with life, this probably isn't the only such seam of fossils there. So did they find this cave by drilling down? I wasn't quite clear when I read that. Did you get that? I think that? so. Yeah, that, that was the impression I got. So they, they kind of drilled down, they hit a hollow... And then, what, they journeyed down the hole they drilled? Yeah, this, this is set up in um, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, the, the campaign sequel, that you find the drill still in position over the hole that they tried to, uh, they tried to or drill rather than dig originally. And it does open up in space that they just collapse the roof of the cavern that they were drilling right above. So like I said, of all the places they could have drilled, they had to drill straight in there. But what the, what's the bore size of the drill? They can't go down the drill hole, surely? No, I think, um, I think it ends up uh, caving in part of the roof right, when, they make, okay. when they attempt to drill. Okay. Lake sends more updates, which are in turn relayed to the outside world. Dyer credits these with building the excitement that has led to the planned Stark Weather Moor expedition. All the time we're getting from Dyer like, yeah, we're telling them stuff, but, you know, don't come, don't come. <laughs> the bulletins relate how similar triangular tracks have been found in fossils from 600 million years ago, all the way up to the Comanchean times. These suggest that Earth was home to complex life forms even before the earliest protozoa? Protozoa, yeah. yeah. Uh, we had previously identified... So, Comanchean. Yeah, 
Lovecraft must have picked this term up from somewhere. And to put this in perspective, I googled the term because I, I hadn't encountered it before either. And one of the first things that I encountered was an old Usenet post from, oh gosh, 15, 20 years ago. It was actually on a geologist's, the Usenet group. One of them has started off the conversation by saying, I've just read this Lovecraft story called The Mountains of Madness, and he's talking about the Comanchean Age. What the fuck is this? So, yeah, these are academics who specialise in this, who haven't come across this. And it seems like this was a term that was coined by uh, a geologist by the name of Robert T. Hill, who derived it from the rock strata he was looking at in the Comanche territories of Texas. And to anyone else apart from Lovecraft, this is really known as the Lower Cretaceous period, about 60 million years ago. I was going to say, because I thought the Comanche were an, in, uh, were an Indian tribe. Yeah. So it was their territories and the fact that, you know, that he was digging on Comanche land that lent the name to the strata and then to the age. Uh. Trust Howie to pick a really bloody obscure t- uh, period that everyone else has a different name for. Yeah, well, it's not just that, but he uses this all throughout the story. I and mean, there's all mm. sorts of references to the Comanchean era all the way through this, like it's something people would know. Mm. I'm just intrigued that you found a geologist's Usenet group. It sounds like, I don't want to denigrate anybody's profession, but man, that's, <laughs> that sounds dull. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it's interesting stuff. I, I, I think you'll find it rocks. Well, that's ah. one, one thing that I found online looking up this stuff was a, a joke clearly from a geologist. So it's like a bumper sticker. Geologists know what makes the bedrock. <laughs> <sighs> Whereas the impression you'd get from this story is that geology is just boring. Yeah. Are we there yet? Are we at the city? Please not, just get to the city. <laughs> there's not a lot of bedrocking in this story. Okay, so... Some of the dinosaur and mammalian fossils from later periods show wounds apparently caused by tools or weapons, kind of like curious holes punched in them or drilled into them. Yeah, or uh, fractures in their bones, very clean fractures, like big cuts. Yeah, or like the lasers. Mm -hmm. They're not lasers. but (laughs) Lake also discovers a greenish soapstone fragment about six inches across and an inch and a half thick has curious smoothness and regularity, shaped like five-pointed star with tips broken off, and signs of other cleavage at inward angles and in centre of surface. The dogs in the camp hate this stone fragment. To be fair, I think mo- anything different would really make some animals just really go nuts. I know our birds have almost like a random wheel of fortune um, list of what am I terrified of today? Is it my own feathers? Is it the cage? Is it the colour red? Just, an animal not liking something is just seems to be the norm. Is it Matt's collection of weird shaped rocks? Yeah, <laughs> at which point Jay or Echo are just going to go <laughs> and try and fly away from it. All right. The next discovery is even more remarkable. A previously unknown life form. This is a monstrous barrel-shaped fossil of wholly unknown nature. Probably vegetable, unless overgrown specimen of some unknown marine radiata. Tissue evidently preserved by mineral salts. Tough as leather, but astonishing flexibility retained in places. Six feet end-to-end, 3.5 feet central diameter, tapering to one foot at each end. Like a barrel with five bulging ridges in place of staves. In furrows between ridges are curious growths, combs or wings that fold up and spread out like fans, which give almost seven-foot wing spread. Arrangement reminds one of certain monsters from primal myth, 
especially fabled elder things in Necronomicon. Like, usually we get in Lovecraft, it was indescribable, I can't describe it, it's unspeakable. Here we get paragraphs of oh. scientific measurements. Oh, this is nothing. I mean, uh, in the next chapter, when they actually dissect these things and go into them in great detail, anyone who complains that Lovecraft skimps on description of his monsters should be forced to read that passage at gunpoint. <laughs> Uh, you, you may actually need the threat of death to make your way to the end of it. <laughs> so not only does he give a fairly good description, he even gives a reference for his description as well. <laughs> I had work to put it all together in my mind to kind of create the picture because it's all very analytical, dry kind of description. Yeah, but once again, much like with Cthulhu, Lovecraft did actually draw this out. Uh, you can find yeah. sketches of it. Uh, if they're, they're available online, I'll try to remember to link to them from the show notes. And once again, like the drawing of Cthulhu, they are profound evidence as to why Lovecraft is remembered as a writer and not an artist. <laughs> the dogs are even more upset by these strange new specimens and have to be kept away from them, lest they tear the new discoveries apart. Lake's team find 14 of them in all, eight fully intact, along with more of the green soapstone fragments. Now, remember that number, friends. Eight of them fully intact. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying there's any relevance to that, but there is. <laughs> During the process of Lake conducting his autopsy on them, we get a bit more description to say that these creatures have heads shaped like five-limbed starfish, each point tipped with a red irised eye. This five-fold structure continues down the barrel of their bodies. Around equator, one at central apex of each of the five vertical stave-like ridges, are five systems of light grey flexible arms or tentacles. Hey, they had to get in there somewhere. <laughs> found tightly folded to torso, but expandable to maximum length of over three feet. Now, one thing that struck me as particularly interesting about this description is the fact that th there's very few life forms on Earth that don't have some form of bilateral symmetry. I mean, this is something that we, I think, inherently as humans associate with living things. Not everything is perfectly symmetrical, and you do get, you know, some creatures which aren't, but they're rare. But here you've got something which follows a sort of five-fold symmetry, and... I, I don't know, I think that that would be fundamentally unnerving, that you'd be looking at this and it would just be a very almost subconscious, visceral reminder of how alien this creature is. Yeah, I mean, I think we see that in plants, maybe, which is why they're saying, is it plant? Is it animal? What is mm. this thing? And also they refer to them at one point as fossils, but this, these things are flexible in, in parts and it's all, aren't fossils in rock? Yeah, because Lake believes that they've been preserved by the fact that they've absorbed mineral salts, which has obviously prevented their decomposition. But as we'll find out, he is tragically wrong about this. So, yeah, I think fossils is probably the wrong term anyway, that they are some form of preserved specimen, at least in his eyes, but, but not ossified the way that a fossil would be. The bottom of the torso ends in another starfish-like structure, and this time tapering off into four-foot-long arms, each tipped with a five-veined membranous triangle. This latter structure matches the fossilised prints Lake keeps finding. I kind of find it weird they've got like triangular feet, everything else is star-shaped. Why haven't they got star-shaped feet? 
I mean, I guess, you know, we've got bilateral symmetry, we've got two arms and two legs, four limbs and so on, but we have, you know, five toes and five fingers. Yeah. So, you know, it, it doesn't have to follow that structure. And it'd be really weird if we had sort of a fractal structure down our bodies and that, you know, by the time we got to the ends of our hands, you know, they, you know each finger was like a representation of a human body. Yeah, or little arms with more hands on the end. And screaming faces as fingertips. That's very Doctor Strange. Lake cannot decide whether this creature is plant or animal, but leans more towards the latter. He believes it to be a form of marine life and is puzzled by the wings. And, despite all his scientific examination, Lake cannot shake off some stranger thoughts. Complete specimens have such uncanny resemblance to certain creatures of primal myth that suggestion of ancient existence outside Antarctic becomes inevitable. Dyer and Peabody have read Necronomicon and seen Clark Ashton Smith's nightmare paintings based on text and will understand when I speak of elder things supposed to have created all earth life as a jest or mistake. Students have always thought conception formed from morbid, imaginative treatment of very ancient tropical radiata. Also, like prehistoric folklore things Wilmarth has spoken of, Cthulhu cult, appendages, etc. Appendages. Hey, Cthulhu gets a mention as well. Yes. Cthulhu cult appendages. <laughs> appendages. You know, what they're is... like those little uh, flexible tentacle things we got a little while back. The more things yeah. you stick on your fingers. Oh, yeah. He means like more members of the cult when he says cult appendages, right? Or what? Or like a branch of the Cthulhu cult. Yeah. Right. Probably. Okay. And also we get the reference to Clark Ashton Smith here, a fellow writer who Lovecraft communicated with, a, well, a real world author. Yeah, I mean, Smith has started out as an artist. We discussed him on a, an episode a long time ago. <laughs> and Lovecraft talked him into writing weird fiction because he believed yeah, correctly that Smith had the imagination for it. But, you know, for most of his career, Smith was an artist. Again, we have, everyone his dog has read, read the Necronomicon, uh, you know, is versed in weird fiction. Lovecraft has a great many strengths as a writer, but characterization isn't really one. And these kinds of things, when they come up, it just echoes the fact that, you know, Lovecraft, with rare exceptions, does treat all his protagonists just as sort of avatars of himself. The other really striking thing in this section is this idea that the Elder Things were supposed to have created all Earth life as a jest or mistake. I mean, we see this revisited later in the story, but the idea is that they, as a way of ensuring a food supply for themselves, created the building blocks of life, and these were left to natural processes of evolution. So they were not directly responsible for creating us, but they set the things in motion that ended up with us. I mean, do you think it says they were for food supply? Yeah, it is. That humans it is or no, our predecessors? Our pre just life in general on Earth. Right, yeah, so they kick-started life. They didn't make humans? No, no. no they, they just evolved. Yeah, I mean, Lovecraft is quite clear about this later in the story, that the process of evolution, as we understand it, Darwinian evolution, is absolutely right. You know, there is no intelligent design here. We are not artificial. We are not created by the elder things. But life, the initial protozoic life that then, you know, built into other things, built into, you know, plants and fish and dinosaurs and mammals and, and monkeys and apes and us. These came about because they set all these things up in the first place and then just ignored them. 
But here it's kind of dropped into the story that he's read the Necronomicon and there's some uh, crazy talk that the Elder Things are supposed to have created all Earth life. But as the reader, you kind of know, oh, that's probably true then. Uh, as I said, we'll, we'll revisit this later in the story because it does get explained in much greater detail. But, yeah, I think out of all the horrible revelations in the story and, and all the ideas, I mean, this sort of quiet thing that's mentioned in passing is one of the big ones. Now, following these transmissions, Dyer is keen to get to Lake's camp, but is foiled again by rising winds. It's really windy here. Yeah, on the Antarctic, apparently the winds rise to like 200 miles an hour, and uh, the average wind speed is like something like 50 to 100 miles an hour. It's very, very windy. Further updates from Lake say that even as the specimens are defrosting, dissecting them remains difficult because of the toughness of their tissue. Everything about these creatures seems to be intact and undecayed, with all internal organs in place. As they thaw, the samples release an overpoweringly offensive odour. Now, didn't you say when you ran one of your games, Matt, some of the players, like, cooked one of these elder things? Yeah, and then served it to the rest of the team. It would be super tough. Yeah. <laughs> you'd like want really good steak knives or and then you'd be chewing it for ages. I think it was more the internal organs that they ended up brewing up as the oh, bits maybe that they nice. could eat. So, so they made elder thing haggis. Yeah, they? it was <laughs> pretty vile. <laughs> yeah, but I imagine, you know, even the tough meat, if you stewed it for long enough, uh, you could eventually break it down that way. Potentially. Uh, I went with everyone who ate at the table. I made them make a note of that on their sheet. So if uh, anything encounters them later on and gets a whiff of this stench on them, then shit may go down. <laughs> Lake's more in-depth examination of the thawed specimen suggests that it may be amphibious and that its brain is remarkably well-developed. The wing structures, even more puzzlingly, suggest that it might be able to fly. Have any idea that the prince in Slate might have been made by ancestors of these creatures is dismissed, as even the earliest fossils match the specimen's extremities exactly. All of this makes Lake whimsically recall the primal myths about great old ones who filtered down from the stars and concocted Earth life as a joke or mistake, and the wild tales of cosmic hill things from outside told by folklorist colleagues in Miskatonic's English department. Wait, in the English department? What the hell? <laughs> What's wrong with that? It just strikes me as that's weird for a folklorist to be in the English department. I always thought that would be in a very different... Um, yeah. Well, also, these things filtered down. Now, it kind of sounds like they didn't really mean to come here. I don't know. Or they fell from the sky by chance. I'm not really sure. Oh, it's like some cosmic game of pachinko. <laughs> what is oh, pachinko? Pachinko is... A Japanese game that's a bit like pinball, where oh. you have a mesh of pins and you drop lots of ball bearings down and you're trying to get some of them to come out through uh, a particular funnel and all the ones that come out where you mean them to come out, you you know, you score as wins. Oh, like those things you get at the fairground, at the, at the seaside, where you put your... used to be a penny yeah, and then 5p and now like probably a euro or something into oh. and it rolls down and yeah. two pound coin you never no, get but, back uh, pachinko is a bit different because you put lots and lots of, of tiny ball bearings down simultaneously oh. and i mean the whole thing is designed as a way of working around japan's slight very strict anti-gambling laws apparently the yakuza uh, are heavily involved with this and what happens is you, you go and you buy all your balls you put them in there and you you, you score everything afterwards and you win tokens that that give you prizes 
The prizes are just fairly simple things like toys, you know, um, or, or little ornaments and so on. But coincidentally, next door to all these pachinko parlours, there tends to be these shops that will buy these little items off you for quite reasonable prices. Oh, coming. Good. I was thinking also when they said they've uh, filtered down that we also know from a different Lovecraft story that this is not the only planet the older things ended up landing on. Because remember, they also appear in Dreams in the Witch House. Yes. Oh, which planet are they appearing on? Whichever, whichever one Gilman goes to where he sees the cities with their minarets and turrets. Oh, yes. Right, right. Yeah. That wasn't ancient Earth, you don't think? No, I interpret it as that it was another city, another planet that Keziah Brown Jenkin had wandered off to that Gilman then followed them to. Right. Or, or maybe re- another dimension. Potentially another dimension. Or I think I mentioned in the course of the episode how we're getting a bit annoyed that at the Mountains of Madness got rejected, he decided to put all this description to good use and drop it in a different story, even where it didn't fit. Well, except the the city that's described, or the structures that are described in Dreams in the Witch House are quite different. Than oh, this. yes. Well, it's mainly thinking the older things. Yeah. I, the other thing that's interesting here, I think, is that he talks about the stories of the great old ones coming down. Now, I mean, this is something that, when I started out playing Call of Cthulhu, used to confuse me a bit, that you had in the books the great old ones and you had the old ones. And they seem to be two very different things. And, you know, the old ones, also known as the older things, were these barrel-shaped creatures. But then you had the great old ones, who were these creatures like Cthulhu, who were these vast, monstrous, you know, alien, almost deities. But here, Lovecraft is conflating the two terms. Yeah, it's super confusing. Yeah. I mean, there's a really good essay by Robert M. Price that is the introduction to the Antarctic cycle, where he talks about all the discrepancies in Lovecraft's nomenclature, the the way that he uses all these different terms in different stories to mean different things, and where his histories contradict each other. And... Yes, you can look at it as we have many times as him trying to replicate the structure of myth, that he is deliberately putting all these contradictory things in. Mm. Price's interpretation is perhaps a bit less charitable, which is that he politely says that Lovecraft couldn't be asked to you know, sort of make all these things mesh up and just you know, reuse terms when he felt like it to mean different things because he wasn't worried about continuity. Yeah, I think couldn't be asked is a bit uncharitable. I'm not sure it's that he couldn't be bothered to put in the work in because he doesn't seem reluctant to put the work in where it's required. Price particularly talks about how Robert E. Howard, when he was writing the Conan stories, wrote a fairly detailed history of the world there so that in different stories he could make references back to particular events or people or places or whatever and have it all be consistent but he he almost criticises Lovecraft for not doing the same thing. And, you know, these inconsistencies he sees as being failings in the mythos. You know, for me, they've always been a feature. Yeah, I'd probably kind of think there are two kinds of people in the world. Those that would see that as a fault and those would see it as a bonus, really. You, you mean those who would see it as a good thing and those who are wrong? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the subtext. Yes. Exhausted. Lake suspends his examination and covers the now rapidly thawing specimens. Dyer prepares to fly up to the new site the following day in the full expectation of finding his colleagues alive and in one piece when he arrives. Also, is it above freezing here? No, but he talks very much about how they had uh, heaters in the tents and they were deliberately thawing the specimens. And that brings us to the end of chapter two, but... 
We're on to chapter three. We may get more than one chapter done in this very episode. Yeah, particularly as chapter three is quite a short one. The following morning, Dyer and his colleagues are eager to fly over to Lake's camp. They're unable to raise Lake on the radio, however, which makes them worry about the weather conditions at the camp. They decide to head up to the camp regardless and set off the following morning, replete with men, dogs, fuel and supplies. During the four and a half hour flight, one of the men spots the huge mountain range ahead. Dyer muses that these stark nightmare spires marked the pylons of a frightful gateway into forbidden spheres of dream and complex gulfs of remote time, space and ultra-dimensionality. Yeah, as you do. Yeah, as any good geologist would, really. I mean, that's kind of cosmic horror you'd experience seeing a mountain. I like the fact that he sort of describes them as not getting any closer. Yes. Because they're... They're, they're so massive that the perspective is such that you know even as they're getting moving like tens or a hundred miles or more, these things are so massive that they don't actually look any bigger because they're so far away. Ice vapors throw up a vast mirage around the mountains. Yet again, we get the mirage. Danforth. Now, there's a name to note. Danforth, with his young keen eyes, spots the cube-like structures, reminding Dyer. Of those paintings painted by, yes, our old friend, Rorick. This makes Dyer think of how disturbingly this lethal realm corresponded to the evilly famed Plateau of Leng in the primal writings. Mythologists have placed Leng in Central Asia, but the racial memory of man or of his predecessors is long, and it may well be that certain tales have come down from lands and mountains and temples of horror earlier than Asia and earlier than any human world we know. I do note here he comments on Danforth's young eyes. I think it's worth noting Dyer is 54 years old. That's young. No, it's not. It's older than you, Scott, right? By two months. Yeah. (laughs) So it's old. I think it's fairly old. I'm glad I'm not in between you. He's 54, (laughs) right? And he's going on this major expedition. Although, you know, like I referred to Ranulph Fiennes, he was probably doing that when he was about... 73 or something crazy but yeah and and didn't brian blessed climb everest when he was in his 60s or 70s or something yes <laughs> <laughs> these structures remind dyer of a cyclopean city looming out of the ice vapors filled with cones and pyramids either alone or surmounting cylinders or cubes or flatter truncated cones and pyramids and occasional needle-like spires in curious clusters of five Tubular bridges link the structures at dizzying heights. He tries to convince himself that this is a mirage. An incredibly detailed and very <laughs> ominously foreboding mirage. <laughs> Just a mirage. Just a mirage. <laughs> Passing over the foothills of these mountains, the men spot a plane below. That's an ice plane, not an aeroplane, sorry. The men spot a plane below that turns out to be the site of Lake's camp. As they land, McTeague sends out the last uncensored wireless message the world was to receive from our expedition. Also, Scott, there was no need to correct yourself about planes. Lovecraft would never, you know, reduce <laughs> himself to calling an aeroplane. <laughs> you know, with the two dots over the E, just shortening it to a plane, that'd be like subhuman. Once the men examine the lake camp, they find that 11 people and all the dogs are dead and young Gedney is missing along with three of the sledges. There is other damage to the equipment and camp. The official version they offer later is that the camp was destroyed by fierce Antarctic storm. 
Now, didn't one of the dogs also go missing? I think yeah, I mean, this isn't yeah. ascertained at this stage. They discover later. Right, that, yeah. They have to kind of like yeah. do dog jigsaw and like, here's a leg, here's a head. Kind of how mm-hmm. I picture it. It seems fairly obvious here. Gedney's gone postal and has run off. Yeah, I mean, that's the same rationale for it, right? Yeah. Which none of us even consider for a moment as we're reading this. No. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me. I mean, if we're looking at this from a Call of Cthulhu point of view, if you were doing a scenario that were like this, where you had monsters dug up and then, you know, all these people dead and, and the bodies dismembered and stuff like that and one of the party missing, that it really would wrong for the players if it just did turn out that one of the NPCs had gone insane, killed everyone, and that these are just fossils. I mean, that is the last thing the players would expect. Mm-hmm. The only specimens of the creatures the men can find are the damaged ones. They've been buried upright in what Dyer describes as snow graves under five pointed mounds punched over with groups of dots in patterns exactly like those on the queer greenish soapstones. And why is it that every alien bloody artefact or headstone is made of soapstone? It's kind of cool. It's carvable. I don't know. I I associate it with a lot of African carvings that I've seen that are made of soapstone. I don't know if it's a common stone in Antarctica or not. Yeah, it just seems weird that you get all the references to the likes of the Cthulhu Idol Mm. being carved out of this greenish soapstone. And then apparently the older thing's got a piece of the action as well. At least the cool looking rock. I mean, it's green for a start, right? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That, and like you say, it's easy to carve. I mean, it is the perfect material for idols. Dyer is clear that from this point, his narration differs radically from the official version relayed back to the base camp and the wider world. We are about to discover what the truth is. I mean, later on, he tells us, oh, now I'm going to tell you what the truth is. And then a bit later on, he says, oh, yeah, yeah, now I'm going to tell you what the truth is. And, and yeah, I, we, we get the idea. Most of the men work on restoring a couple of lakes' planes to working order in readiness for their departure the following morning. The tragedy at the camp leads the men to decide to cut short the expedition and return home. As far as the public knows, this is exactly how things progressed. Dyer talks about how he has tried to discourage further exploration of the region since survivors returned to the university and since the very start of this story. In fact, the very first fucking paragraph. Look, if something's worth saying once, it's worth saying a half dozen fucking times, Matt. Uh, I mean, you can't ram these points home hard enough. But by the way, I'm going to tell you the real truth about what happened down in Antarctica now. Yeah, and all this crazy weird shit, but don't go there. <laughs> it's so cool. No, you don't want to see it, um, but it's yeah. really cool. No, 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 you don't want to see it, but God, is it cool. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you read that Necronomicon like everyone at my university has. But Danforth has not been able to help with these efforts due to his fragile mental health. Oh, I wonder what happens to him there. We receive our first intimation that Danforth saw something on the expedition, you know, with those great keen eyes of his, that drove him mad. So far, Dyer's efforts to discourage the planned Starkweathermore expedition have proved fruitless. In desperation, he is now, now, I, I promise, now about to share the truth about what really happened on the plateau after the grim discoveries on the camp. So the, it just makes a passing reference here that him and Danforth went on this 16th our expedition in a plane over the mountains and came back but i think i kind of missed that the first time i read this because it's really done in passing as a a kind of incidental thing we flew over there but you know don't worry about that but danforth thinks he saw something creepy but actually that's like the whole of the rest of the story is that thing yeah and i hadn't realized that he was relaying that right here but he is and so we come to Chapter 4. So thinking back to the events at the camp, 
Dyer cannot help but dwell upon the condition of the bodies of both the men and the dogs, which were torn and mangled in fiendish and altogether inexplicable ways. Death, so far as we could judge, had in each case come from strangulation or laceration. Dyer suspects that any violence was started by the dogs, as their ill-constructed corral, fashioned from snow, appears to have been demolished from within. The camp is still suffused with the foul odour of the specimens which had driven the dogs mad. Well, I mean, yeah, the dogs may have started the violence, but they probably didn't strangle people. Yeah. We've all seen the thing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, Whatever yeah. it is, it's weird and it's pissed off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is what I'm thinking of now, isn't it? You're in the Antarctic, the dogs are barking and they're, like, breaking out. Despite the fact that Gedney cannot be found, Dyer is reluctant to believe that he is responsible for this carnage. The bodies of the men and dogs have been butchered, with large sections of tissue removed. Sprinkles of salt lie scattered around the remains. The bodies of one man and one dog in the laboratory tent almost seem to have been dissected. Think of it. If Gedney was responsible, he'd gone postal. If he hasn't got enough supplies, he's going to have to make do with what he's got. So he has a little donner party, he salts the meat, puts it all on a, on a sledge and hightails it out of there. It's Gedney! Yeah. He's responsible. Yeah. And yet Dyer's supposed to just throw in all this evidence out? Do you think we could build a case that it was Gedney all along and that all this other stuff is just hallucinations on the part of Dyer and Danforth? Yep. All right, let's build the case. <laughs> Once the men have finished cataloguing the damage, they realise that besides Gedney, one dog is also missing, along with the eight uninjured biological specimens, the three sledges and certain instruments. Illustrated technical and scientific books writing materials, electric torches and batteries, food and fuel, heating apparatus, spare tents, fursuits and the like. Aerial surveys by plane failed to spot any trace of Gedney in the surrounding area. Now I'm picturing Gedney pulling three sleds and he's like <laughs> dressed in his fursuit. But yeah. fursuit brings something different well, to mind nowadays. I was about to mention that when I was writing up this synopsis in Google Docs, the grammar checker in there tried to convince me that fursuit should be one word. Yeah. And, and that puts a whole different spin on at the Mountains of Madness, yeah. which is this expedition of furries going off to Antarctica. So now we're trying to frame a case against a furry. <laughs> I mean, we're getting on to dodgy ground here. Is, is, is this turning into persecution? Yeah, Totally. <laughs> Dyer and Danforth decide to take an aeroplane and survey the nearest pass, high above them at a height of some 24,000 feet. While conscious of the risks of the cold and rarefied air, they leave the cabin windows open to improve visibility, compensating for this with extra furs. Yeah, no, this is just absolutely bizarre. Because, I mean, let's forget about the speed that they're travelling at and the fact that you know interferes with air pressure as well. They are going to this incredible height, most of the way up Everest, certainly to within the zone that you need uh, oxygen cylinders if you're climbing a mountain. They're doing this with the cabin windows open, so you know the fast-moving air is going to have a, uh, an effect on air pressure as well, or at least the available oxygen. Yeah, I mean, this is just asking for them to black out from oxygen starvation. Do you think they might have had breathing masks on, though? It doesn't say they... It doesn't say anything about that. No, it but. doesn't. And and let's face it, with all the detail that Lovecraft puts in about everything else, if they had breathing masks, he'd mention it. You'd kind he of think they he would. mentions the fact that they put on extra furs. If it was something as fundamental as them putting on breathing masks... 
I do remember that was how one of my characters died in Beyond the Mountains of Madness, by going wibble in the plane after it took off and then not being able to get his oxygen mask on. Yeah, you should have pointed to this. Like, <laughs> quote the text. Yeah. But they got over the mountain, why the hell good night? They made the roll. What can you say? As they approach, they see more and more of the cubic structures, all heavily weathered. Dyer believes they could be some 50 million years old. They take copious photographs from the air. Now Is that- he just flying over saying, that looks like maybe like 50 million years old? He passed an extreme appraise roll. Yeah. Oh, well, an extreme geology role. He is a Com- geologist. A combined role. <laughs> <laughs> but this is very much within his wheelhouse. I mean, he is a geologist. He's used to looking at the weathering patterns on stones. If there was a character in this story who could look at that and make that determination, it would be dire. And let's face it, I mean, there's plenty of stuff we're coming to later where characters infer huge amounts of information from very little that's given to them. Compared to what we're about to see, this is nothing. Dyer likens these structures to the ruins of Machu Picchu in the Andes. Even as a geologist, he cannot find a natural explanation for them. While formations like the Giant's Causeway in Ireland may have similar geometrical regularities, Dyer does not believe there to be sufficient volcanic activity in the area to have created these cubes. Anybody Mm. been to the Giant's Causeway? No. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) I have! Long time ago, but uh, yeah, it is pretty cool. And was it built by older things? Uh, giants, I think. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Kind um, of clues in the name. It's it's like Hex Map. <laughs> it's like, a, you know, like some kind of board game made out of all these little hexagonal tiles, but they're all at different levels and stuff. It's really weird. It's Wait, when kind you of say by the coast. Like, I've only seen photographs of it. How big are the, the hexes? As I recall, about the size of your head. I really? might be wrong about that. I'm, oh, gosh. I'd, I'd always assume they were much larger. I might be. Yeah, I might. It's like 30 years ago since I was okay. there. I remember seeing it, but. No, I mean, I really don't know. I've, I've I think kind of like there. paving slab size, maybe, but mm. at most, they're not, they're not massive. The area is also peppered with cave mouths that appear too regular in form to be completely natural. Their number and distribution suggest to Dyer that there must be a network of tunnels below. Wow. That's a, another big leap. Well, well, he's a geologist. He knows these things. Yeah. For all his scientific background... Dyer sees the area in more poetic terms. Surprise, surprise. As if that's news to us. I mean, he's been doing this all along. So he says, The touch of evil mystery in these barrier mountains and in the beckoning sea of opalescent sky glimpsed betwixt their summits was a highly subtle and attenuated matter not to be explained in literal words. He's a fucking scientist. His job is to explain things in literal words and, and numbers as well. But literal words is in the job description. It's, it's also kind of what he's doing. He's being driven to poetry, all right? <laughs> you know you've taken such a big sand hit when? Yeah. Like that, mm. that, that is one thing that is clearly missing from the bouts of madness tables in Call of Cthulhu. What, use the word betwixt every second word? Uh, yeah, or... <laughs> Or at least, you know, for, for the next D10 rounds, you have to express your ter- yourself purely in poetic terms. Yeah, let's get some more of it. He says, Rather was it an affair of vague psychological symbolism and aesthetic association, a thing mixed up with exotic poetry and paintings and with archaic myths lurking in shunned and forbidden volumes. He's clearly a learned man. He's clearly a man with a wide breadth of interests. I get the impression he's a fairly shit geologist. Mm. I reckon if you did stat him up, though, he's got to have, like, 
30-40% in art and craft purple prose. Yeah, well, I'd say he's got 80% in Artcraft poetry and about 30% in Artcraft geology. <laughs> and some in uh, Cthulhu Mythos. What's yep. his rating in that, though? Yeah. How much do you get for Necronomicon? About 18%, off, if memory serves me right? Quite a bit. He, he's obviously read it a few times. Yeah, so he's probably in the above 20%, but still a non-believer. Uh, well, that will change. <laughs> that'll change. <laughs> As the plane climbs, the men prepare to see what lies beyond the pass, something never before glimpsed by human eyes. The wind that blows over the mountains once again carries that curious piping sound. But what what is the thing over the mountains? What is it? I want to know. It's finally the bit of the story I've been fucking waiting for since the start. (laughs) So so, so clearly this is when we should stop the episode. Indeed. (sighs) I wasn't even there yet. This is the exciting bit, though. This is when I stopped having to trudge through it a bit and like, oh, this is getting good now. Oh, you say that. Give it yeah, a couple of chapters good. when we, we suddenly get the incredibly detailed history info dump. That I mean, there are some cool bits in it, but by God, does he go on. Well, yeah, all right. But, and and, and how, do you, how you extrapolate it from all these carvings. <laughs> yeah, you will hear me rant about that at the time. Thank <laughs> you. Well, it is not just Danforth and I who are hearing curious sounds being blown in from the wind. We have some new Patreon backers to thank, and in particular we have two $5 backers who we are going to thank through curious sounds. I mean, we're not guaranteeing that they'll be blown into you from the wind, but we'll see what we can do. Yes, friends, first on our list today is Craig Wallerstein. Indeed, thank you very much, Craig, and uh, I hope you like what's coming to you. <laughs> yes, thank you, Craig. And uh, yeah, that that does sound needless. Well, I was about to say needlessly. No, it sounds needfully sinister. And then, oh yes, thank you to Amber Reeves, who we met at Necronomicon. So yes, thank you very much, Amber. Ah oh, yes, Amber, yes, yes. Well, hope you enjoy this, Amber. Hey, uh, thank you, Amber, and yep, I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, I don't know if, if Amber sells these. I, I think she used to. I, she was wearing this remarkable pendant at Necronomicon, which is something she made herself. Uh, she is you know, a very skilled sculptor and a very uncanny one. And she created this sort of Lovecraftian talisman with, with all sorts of you know, eldritch things and fangs and i think we're going to want a picture in the show notes if she's willing to take a photograph of it yeah at the very least I, I, i'll see what i can do
Meanwhile, on social media, we have a great new review from Dalex D Diddlesticks. I think it's meant to be Daleks. I think Dalex Daleks. Yeah, something triple D. There we go. In Australia, be warned. That's a good start. The good friends will entertain, stimulate, and intrigue you for hours. However, be warned. Do not fall asleep during this podcast, or you shall awake shivering from the darkest nightmare with the demented wails of thank you to our latest Patreon backer. I think that has never been more true than in this episode. <laughs> well, I seem to recall our friend Ollie uh, said very much the same thing on one of the oh, yes. early episodes when we started doing these songs that he awoke uh, to hear his own name being like chanted and like just woke up and didn't know where he was. Well, or what was it was going worse on. than that because yeah, he'd set it as the ringtone on his telephone, and he was at home sick with a high fever, and he finally drifted off to sleep, and he woke up you know, in the midst of this fever dream to hear us chanting his name, and yeah, that that's got to be at least a D twenty sand loss. Mm, that was no fever dream. <laughs> And we've had some wonderful feedback on our recent episode about Lovecraft and the Occult. First off from Evelyn Moreau on Discord, who says, I think the most interesting comment on this episode was the presence of combat mechanics is reassuring in Call of Cthulhu. Engaging in combat is often a means for the players to gain agency in any of the scenarios. I guess that to have a non-violent game like Call of Cthulhu, you need to provide a game mechanic that plays the same role of providing agency for the players. Something that covers a non-violent way of resolving things that the players will want to engage with to gain agency in the scenario. Magic rituals seem like an interesting alternative. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. It's really difficult sometimes as a player thinking of non-violent ways to resolve a scenario. Especially when your first thought is violence. Well, my first thought in most situations is violence. Because I'm just thinking anything but combat. So, hey, magic's great. Yeah, but you usually go for violence, Matt. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I guess one of the things that's sometimes a bit difficult to square, certainly in traditional Call of Cthulhu, I think Pulp Cthulhu provides more options here. The way you engage with the magic system in Call of Cthulhu is usually very prescriptive. You have particular spells. I mean, you might, yes, be able to fudge something with a spontaneous use of the Cthulhu mythos. But on the whole, you have fewer creative options mm. as a player that you can do compared to combat yeah it doesn't really require necessarily a lot of description yeah. of what you're doing as a player you know i'm casting this spell and that's the equivalent of saying i fire my gun or i hit him with a stick when you're doing combat effectively you you try and describe what you're doing and you know you're you're parrying and you're trying to sweep their foot out from under them or it's very reactive to the situation whereas with magic you know, you don't really get that. It'd be nice to have more of that, though. I think yeah. Evelyn makes a good point about as a player, you get agency. And I guess what we mean by that is you get to add description and narrative and what your player's doing exactly. And you get quite a lot of say over that. Yeah, because the most boring Call of Cthulhu scenarios are played are the ones where you're told, you know, this is the counter-ritual or this is the spell you've got to cast in order to dismiss this creature or stop Thing X from happening. And you're basically given a set of instructions or, you know, worse than that, just a, given a role you have to make. 
and you go to the right place and you make it and maybe something interferes with you and you've got to try to you know work around that but that interference is normally physical so you know someone else perhaps might have to hold off the cultists while you cast it hmm. but fundamentally the actual magical side of things is ironically the least well magical part of it I mean, I think that's probably true in most games. I'm just thinking in D&D as well. Mm. I mean, you've oh, got yeah. your spells. They are formulated things, cast fireball, okay? You know, shoot it down there, it blows up and yeah. does a, an area effect of damage. The only game I can think of where I've had sort of back and forth on, not, not necessarily magical, but certainly, you know, sort of pseudo-magical spiritual combats like that is Dogs in the Vineyard. Where, you know, I've seen exorcisms and things like that played out, where it is, you know, round after round of, you know, exchanging stakes and, and, you know, bidding against each other, and it feels really dynamic. It feels like a combat. Mm. It's that back and forth, parry, blow. Yeah. I mean, which Dogs in the Vineyard mechanics use as you you narrate each back and forth blow, which I suppose something, you know, most magic doesn't have. I think in also Ars Magica, where it's more down to the players to improvise magical effects, to put a form and a technique together to improvise an but effect. But even then, I mean, do you tend to have, um, you know, say something that would take the place of combat, where you have, say, a magical duel or a battle of wits or whatever between two mages, with the back-and-forth spell, counter-spell, you know, and, and your clever manoeuvres around each other? I think there's a little bit of that, but in the general use of spontaneous magic, I guess the one thing you do have is that player creativity in mm. how they want to cross a chasm. They could make a, a bridge of air or a bridge of earth or make a tree mutate and reach across. Or So the players have quite a bit of input into the narrative in a kind of a spontaneous improvised way there is a bit of that in um, thinking of magical dueling in mage the awakening um called mm. the dual arcana or dual arcane um which is specifically about using magic it's not as a uh, meant as a kind of fight to the death but more as a, a method of like, settling disputes because, yeah, I think it would be a really interesting thing to try in, particularly Pulp Cthulhu, if you have a player character who is meant to be a sorcerer, or even certain types of psychic, where they are perhaps doing things that aren't going to be that interesting if it's just a single role, single resolution, but you want to have that back and forth. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the stakes keep going up until there's a resolution. Yeah. <laughs> And then the answer is 42 on Discord says, I think of magic in Call of Cthulhu as tapping into a source of power that is beyond our ken. All of the ritual and trappings of magic serve no practical purpose for obtaining channeling the power. Instead, they are a means of rationalising, a psychic defence mechanism to blunt the effect of recognising the reality of what is going on. Mm. Yeah, contextualising it, put it in... It's almost, uh, again, thinking of uh, well, more Mage the Ascension this time, um, setting up a paradigm that you use to... be It's the lens of which you view the world through. Everyone can have a different one, but he gets the same thing done in the end, and it still channels the power from the same place. Sean F. Smith on Reddit says... That was a cracking listen, folks. The evolution of horror podcasts focuses on horror cinema, picking it apart through focus on a different subgenre each season. The forthcoming chunk is going to be occult horror, which could help. Yeah, I didn't realise this, and unfortunately I haven't had a chance to listen to that yet. I don't even know if it's out. But I will be sure to link to that from the show notes, so thank you very much, Sean.
time to wrap up. Do we have any new thoughts about the chapters that we covered in Mountain of Madness? Yay, we're at the city! Woohoo! Yeah, it's great when <laughs> him and Danforth fly over the mountains. That's the exciting bit, I reckon. <laughs> so, listeners, remember, skip chapters one through four. <laughs> no, no, don't do that. No, read them all thoroughly. No, I, to be fair, I mean, there is a lot of cool stuff, particularly in Chapter 3, where we're seeing the aftermath of what happened at the late camp. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm being somewhat facetious. I say get on with it. I mean, there is some interesting stuff happening. It's just <laughs> slow. I don't want to put it down. It's, it's, it's all do. good stuff. You do. I know you do. But it's, it's, it's good stuff. I mean, I think it's one of Lovecraft's best stories. From um, this point on. Well, okay. You know, we talked about it being a handout one can come across when you're playing the campaign Beyond the Mountains of Madness from Chaosium. And, you know, I remember we were out there on the ice playing it. We should say the three of us played in that yeah. campaign run yeah. by our friend Robin. What, 10, 12, oh, 15 years God, ago? A long time. Yeah. long time ago. Certainly over 10 years ago, yeah. Um, uh, we were all players in it. And, yeah, one evening I remember Robin, you know, our characters got the manuscript and I went home and, you know, I was laid there in bed, got the book out to read it. And I could really imagine myself there in the tent in the Antarctic reading this manuscript. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's like the best handout ever. You know what? I never got to read it until last year. No. Really? Yeah, I never read it while we were playing the campaign. That's why you died. <laughs> Repeatedly. Yeah, you deserved yeah. it. You, 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 deserved you missed the bit in there that said, do not climb the ice wall. Oh, do not climb the ice wall and also don't look out of the plane and see a shog off. That was a real big kind of... <laughs> yeah, no you see, if you'd read the handout, you'd have known that. <sighs> <sighs> yeah. You and Danforth. Yeah. I don't necessarily disagree with you that this is one of Lovecraft's greatest stories. It's just... I see it as being very much a curate's egg of a story, that there's some exceptional stuff in there. There's some of Lovecraft's finest writing, certainly some of his best ideas... But, you know, at the same time, it's buried under strata of geological waffle. You're pleased with yourself for that one, aren't you? <laughs> yes. Hell yeah, yeah. I was just going to say buried under a glacier, and it's moving at glacial speed. <laughs> Come on, it's got all that good geology in it. Good. I feel like I should have earned a tick in geology just reading this. Yeah. And you yeah. roll for your skill and gain 1%. <laughs> yeah, probably. One, day, one day you're going to come across a reference to the Comanche era, yeah. and you're going to know what it means. Yeah, like a pub quiz or something. Yeah. yeah. It means I've got to go back to the episode and remember what the <laughs> hell everyone else remembers it as. All right, well, next time we pick it up with Chapter V. And until then, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. BlasphemousTomes.com Are we at the city yet? We're not there yet. Be oh. quiet. Oh.